Um, if you're joining us for the first time tonight, we're just walking right through the Bible a couple of chapters a week. Um, and so tonight we pick up in Exodus chapter 1. To get us rolling, I'd actually like to just read the first few verses. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So I want you to notice that the book opens with the story already in process. Hebrew, the very first word of the text of the book of Exodus is the word and, which you know from your elementary English classes is not how you begin a sentence, let alone an entire book. But the author really wants us to understand that this story only makes sense in the context of what we've already understood from the book of Genesis. In fact, not only does he begin the book with and, but he also repeats what we already know from the final chapters of Genesis. The only difference in his presentation of the sons of Jacob here is in Genesis it talked about them going to Egypt and now we have them in Egypt. That's the only difference. Word for word this passage is found in, um, I believe in Genesis 47. Uh, he just changes who came to Egypt instead of went down to Egypt. That's the only change he makes. He's intentionally trying to put things in perspective. Okay. Now I want you to notice verse 6. It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So now what we find in verse 6 here is just the passage of time. And one of the things that we should get under our belt right now as we look at the story the Bible is telling is that God tells long stories. We've already seen evidence of this in the book of Genesis. Abraham is given a promise, come out to the land that I will show you and I will give you many descendants. It's 25 years of his life until that promise is fulfilled. Here though, we cross generational lines from the original generation, the final cast, if you will, of the book of Genesis, uh, and generation rolls by, and then generation, and another generation, and it almost seems like the story is on hold, and we don't actually know why. We're told effectively that, that Israel does one thing as they're living in Egypt, they multiply. In fact, notice how he packs on synonyms at the end of verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Okay? He really only has one point, but he wants to make sure we really get it. Now, if you've been through the book of Genesis with us, the language used there sounds familiar right? Multiplication and being fruitful and exceedingly great. In fact, in the Hebrew here, it says literally that they were swarming in swarms, which takes us not just back to the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they would have many descendants as the stars in the sky or as the sand on the seashore, but all the way back to the creation narrative, 
right? When it was the fish on the first day that life, uh, animal life was created, and they swarmed in swarms throughout all of the seas. He's bringing back that language, okay? And so we see here partially, we'll get a feel for it more in a second, exactly what God is doing. It looks like the plan is on hold, but it's not on hold. It looks like God isn't doing anything, but he's doing something that's incredibly natural, but also very important. You see, God's big plan, starting with Abraham, is to create a nation. And when the book of Genesis closes, we don't have a nation, we have tribes. We have 12 brothers, all the sons of one man, all with their own family, and starting for those families to have families. But by the time Exodus really gets rolling and the people of Israel leave Egypt and head back to the promised land, they've gone from the 70 people we have here to probably 2 million plus people, okay? And so God is using Egypt like an incubator. He's creating a nation in the midst of the nation of Egypt. Now, God's promise, very simply, was that that Israel would be fruitful, that the descendants of Abraham would multiply. So in that context, let's read verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So Pharaoh comes on, he looks at this thing that God is doing, it's natural and it's normal, but it's also noticeable, right? We saw even in the tail end of Genesis that while the Egyptians were starving and struggling and selling themselves into slavery to Pharaoh just to get through the famine, in the land of Goshen, all was good because of Joseph, right? And so they were already flourishing, but that flourishing continues to now they're outpacing the growth rate of the nation of Egypt. And so the Pharaoh, the king, looks at this and he goes, this isn't wise. This immigrant culture is becoming a minority majority, right? This immigrant culture that is not us is getting to the point where they could overwhelm us. And he says, what if we're at war? And side note, Egypt is always at war. So this is not some surprising hypothetical. He's looking, he's looking on the calendar at next Tuesday. I've got a war scheduled next week. What if they add on to our enemies? What if they turn against us? And he says at the end, what if they escape the land? That's not actually what the phrase means here. This is the same phrase that's used in Genesis for the water breaking loose out of the earth. What he's afraid of is them overflowing the land, overturning the land, taking over the land of Egypt. That's what this phrase actually means here. And notice what he says. He says, let us deal shrewdly. He says, let's be wise about this, okay? Now, I want you to notice here that he's talking, right? Look at verse 10 again. Come, let us deal shrewdly. Who's the us here? This is him speaking to the nation of Egypt. This is him explaining to him, uh, to his nation, how to deal with the Jewish problem, right? And he puts it in relatively unsurprising terms. He plays to their fears. He plays to the outsider paradigm that they're not like us. And he also says, let's just be smart about this, right? He continues on here. 
And so here is his solution, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh the store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And so the plan here is we need to decrease their social status. We need to enslave them. If you're present, you now belong to us. He puts them into slavery to control them, and it seems like his plan is if we work them hard enough, then we can taper off the growth, right? If the men are away building cities, if the men are overworked, if they're under taskmasters and oppressed, then we can at least kind of clamp down on this growth and get things under control. Basically, what he wants to do is place his boot firmly on the neck of the Jews, okay? Now, aside from the fact that this is clearly oppressive, aside from the fact that this is uh, clearly unjust, I want you to recognize also that Pharaoh has just made himself an enemy of the promises of God, okay? God's plan is for Israel to multiply. Pharaoh's plan is to stop that. Okay. This is going to play out a lot more in the weeks to come, but it begins right here. The opposition here is not merely Pharaoh against Israel, but Pharaoh against God. And so he comes up with this plan, but look at the results of it in verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So not only does it not work, but it actually works against him. And so all of a sudden, their birth rate goes even higher. A teacher I had in Bible college said, when you read the first chapter of Egypt, what you discover Israel does for the duration of their time in Egypt is two things, bricks and babies, okay? They build these cities and they have babies. And that is the message that the author is trying to get across. But even here under the thumb of Egypt, even here in great oppression and injustice, they're still flourishing, Now, let's be honest here. That doesn't downplay the awfulness of their circumstance. And we haven't noticed yet, but we'll notice relatively quickly, there is a character who is surprisingly absent from the narrative right here. The question we can imagine them asking during this period is, where is God? Did Jacob make a mistake in bringing us to Egypt? Yeah, it was okay for the time, but now we're trapped. Now we're slaves. Now we're oppressed. But the story keeps rolling. So phase one of the plan doesn't work, phase two. So uh, verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so he thinks maybe we just haven't been hard enough on them and he kicks it up. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shapira and the other Pua. Now, notice this. These are the first names in the story so far, right? We get the context with the sons of Jacob. The king, Pharaoh, whoever he is here, isn't named. Uh, None of the players are named except for these two midwives, okay? Now, it says here that they're Hebrew midwives, and this is actually a little bit difficult because we don't know if this is midwives to the Hebrews, in other words, Egyptians, or Hebrews who were also midwives, in other words, Jews. It's hard to tell from the text. In fact, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, the Greek translation from the time of Jesus and the much older uh, Hebrew translations we have, diverge on this point and come to two opposite conclusions. 
It seems most likely to me that these women are probably Egyptians because the plan that he's about to lay out here wouldn't work otherwise. Notice what he says to these midwives. He says, verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. Okay, so he decides here to do, do, deal with the problem at its source. And so he contacts the midwives. And like I said, this threat seems somewhat empty. This plan doesn't seem to work if these are Hebrew women. It doesn't sound like a plan, even at threat of death, that they would be involved in, but that he would try and enlist his Egyptian midwives who serve the nation of Egypt in this way makes a little bit more sense. But either way, what he says is, when the child are being born, check the gender. If it's a girl, let it live. If it's a boy, put him to death. Okay. Now, why is this? Clearly, the reasoning is that that's where the strength of the next generation is, that they're the threat, right? That if you keep the males limited in the population, not only do you limit the strength, but actually you also, over time, limit the population, okay? So this is his plan, Um, but uh, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live, okay? Now, even when it refers to them as God-fearers here, it seems to imply that they're foreigners. But they're foreigners with a conscience, right? And so this plan, even though it doesn't involve their own people, is still, as I think all of us would agree, reprehensible. Um, That this sort of uh, task, they're unwilling to do, and so they come up with a counter plan. And so this is what they they do. They, They don't take the lives of the sons they resist because they fear God. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Okay, so here's what happens. It's years later at this point, right? Because now he's seeing three-year-old boys running around the street. Now in public, there's clearly still a new generation of coming. That's when he calls the midwives to account, okay? And he says, what have you done here? And they have an excuse. The excuse is this, um, Verse 19, the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so they remove themselves from responsibility and they just say, these women are self-sufficient. And by the time we get there, the baby's already born and we've lost the opportunity to quietly discover a dead, a stillborn, right? They have no way to actually bring this about non-publicly because right now, um, Pharaoh's plan is not public. This is not a policy that he wants everyone to know about. This is a quiet behind the scenes thing, okay? That's why he doesn't just slaughter all the three-year-olds, okay? He's trying to do this in a way where it looks like just something that's happening and not something he's actually called for. But they're unwilling to do so, um, and because of that, they're named here. They're the only ones named in the story. In fact, I want you to notice that already we're seeing that Pharaoh's plan isn't working for a surprising reason. Who did he see as the threat? Who was he trying to take care of? The men. But watch as we read this story, the way Egypt, or the way Israel survives their time in Egypt here is all about the women, okay? And so first, it's these two midwives, but it doesn't end there. So verse 20, so God dwelt, sorry, excuse me, for God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God and he gave them families. In other words, they became part of Israel themselves. 
They were so respected within Israel, they eventually took Jewish husbands and became part of God's promised people. I'm winding the story relatively far ahead, but we'll find when Israel leaves Egypt, they don't leave alone. A large constituency of people who resonate with them and who've kind of married in and become part of their family goes with them. And so these two are the first to join the good ship Israel, if you will. So now we get to the final plan, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now he moves to public policy and it's extreme. It's all of you Egyptians, all of you Hebrews, everyone. If there's a son, he goes in the Nile. Okay. This uh, is extreme, is it not? And it's worth recognizing here that there is a religious element to this that you might miss. Egyptian was a pantheistic uh, religion that worshipped many gods. The Nile is one of them. Okay? The Nile is not just a convenient place to dispose of babies. By doing it in this way, it is inherently religious. And it may be, some scholars believe, that he's actually distancing himself from the atrocity by basically just saying, this is the Nile. The Nile, we're just, we're just giving the babies to the Nile. It's the Nile that's taking their lives. That may be the possibility. Either way, don't be surprised when the Nile becomes the field of combat between God of the Hebrews and the God of Pharaoh. Okay. So now things are getting serious, right? Because we're not just talking about quiet and explainable resistance by a few people. We're talking about obedience or death. Right? We're, we're talking about a, a law that all the sons of the Hebrews must be thrown into the Nile. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And so suddenly we're introduced to a couple. We don't even know their names. We'll learn their names later. But we know that the couple has a child. And it says here that when she saw that the child was fine, she hid him for three months. The word there for fine is actually just the basic Hebrew word good. Okay? Most likely, it's not that she looks at this child and goes, this one's, I have to keep this one. Right? I think all of us as parents would recognize that any baby we're going to feel that way about. By using this word, it's probably once again recalling the imagery back from the very beginning of Genesis. Right? All that God created was good. And so here, seeing that Moses was good is not just a natural and normal reference. It's also a reminder that it's the God of the Bible who gives life. Okay? It's a reminder uh, of that God, but he's still not on the scene. We have terrible circumstances we have horrible oppression we we see a rubber meets the road final law that's that looks honestly like the end of the future of Israel God is still not on the scene and suddenly we have a mother a mother who has a child and she quietly hides her son for the first three months okay now what happens next verse three when she could hide him no longer she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Okay, two things to notice here. First off, the box that she builds here is an ark. 
That's the word that's used here. It's the only other place where this word is used outside of the flood in Genesis. And so there's this verbal reminder, there's this emphasis here. Um, when we get to the ark as in the box that the Ten Commandments are put in, that's a different word. But this is the only two places we find this word. And it makes sense, right? Because what does she build him? She builds him a boat. Notice also that what she's doing here, in one sense, is obeying the law, right? It's almost a loophole scenario. She's going to put him in the Nile, but she's going to build him a boat first, okay? But as she does this, we don't understand what she's doing. In fact, I, won, I, I read one commentator who was so clearly a man and probably not a father because his argument was that she wasn't going to ship him down the Nile, that she was just putting him near the Nile uh, because she couldn't hide him at home anymore. Okay? This idea that you could leave a baby exposed in a box and just check in on him occasionally is insane. Okay? Clearly here, she doesn't know what else to do. And so she's just trying to provide for the baby and in a sense it's out of her hands and she's letting it be out of her hands. In fact, notice this. Not only does his mother take action like the midwives did, but also his sister is standing by. And so notice what it says in verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Okay. So the plan is a little bit open-ended, but it's still a plan. Miriam, Moses' sister, as we'll find out later, is stationed nearby just to keep an eye on things. They're waiting for something to happen. And that's what happens. And once again, it's another woman. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it and saw the child, behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And so notice this. This is one of Pharaoh's daughters. Okay, so Pharaoh is completely rigid and callous against these children. His daughter is not. And she sees this baby bound up so nicely in a boat, crying because he's been abandoned, and she takes pity on him. And so what happens? Uh, verse 7, Then his sister, that's Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for her? And so she just runs in and she goes, oh, you found a baby. Would you like someone to nurse the baby? Because he's clearly not weaned yet, right? He's just a few months old. See how convenient this is? This is the plan, okay? It, it may be ideal or unideal that it was the princess. We're not told if they, you know, knew that it was her practice to bathe at the river, knew that she might be sympathetic. But whatever it is, because of the ingenuity of Moses' sister, the whole story changes, Right? Because watch what happens. Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so this sister goes and gets, who's, who's a nursing, you know, who's a wet nurse? How about Moses' mom? Right? He gets Moses' mom, and she's getting paid to raise her son, who now has the protection of being the son of the princess. Right? And so as, as this son is getting older, um, the, the Jews in these days used to nurse until maybe three or four. Okay? So he's running around the street. He's one of the visible boys, and everybody's like, boy, that's a boyish daughter you've got. No, this is my son. 
what, how can that be? Well, he's going to be adopted by the princess, right? Do you see how everything's coming together? But I want you to notice here that women are the primary players, okay? Now, I also want you to notice that the role that they play is tremendously important in the story, right? This is a massive part of how God is going to save Israel, but they're also relatively female roles. I, I am thoroughly convinced that the biggest problem we have is not merely a sexism that says women can't do these things, but an undervaluing of things that women particularly do. Okay. I do not think we live in a nation that rightly values motherhood. And what we're seeing in this story with the midwives who rebel against the all-powerful, you know, dictator against a mother who takes action creatively against a a sister who ingeniously plans this God is using the one thing that wasn't a threat to Pharaoh right Pharaoh was only threatened by the sons but it's the women that are actually his undoing not only that but God uses this to give Moses a full ride scholarship in Egypt right he grows up in the palace and he's then exposed to all of the education that Egypt has to offer. In fact, it's worth noting how many of God's great leaders throughout history, he farms out the education to pagan powers. Daniel, educated in Babylon, right? Moses, educated in Egypt. Now, I homeschool my kids, and I have a plenty, a long list of reasons why I do so, but we've got to watch out for this protectivism that despises foreign education, and I'll remind you here that this is not merely foreign, but pagan education, right? What do they do in Daniel's day? They give him a totally new pagan name. You're named for El, the God of Israel? Not anymore, right? Now you're named for our moon God, right? That's what they do with Daniel. They say, you're going to study astrology, you're going to study the mystic arts of magic. He, he's in that school, okay? And God intentionally uses it. Now, let's be honest. Some of you know the story. That's not enough. Moses isn't fully and completely equipped by the time he graduates. What comes next? There's still more God has to do. But nonetheless, he uses this. And so... Um, The last thing we get here is Moses' name. And Moses' name is intriguing because the word in Egyptian and Hebrew means two different things and they both apply, okay? Moses in the Hebrew means to draw out, okay? Which is how she found him. Now, she's an Egyptian princess. I promise you she doesn't speak Hebrew, okay? The significance that's presented here is from Moses' perspective as he's writing this story. He says, it's, it's significant. Actually, the word in Egyptian comes from the root word that just means to be born. In other words, by naming him Moses, she takes him as his own, as if she gave birth to him, okay? But nonetheless, here he has a name. And then, once again, I want you to notice the time jump. Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up. There's a good deal of the story that's not told, but beside the fact that it doesn't give us all the details of his growing up, remember, where is Israel in this time? Still oppressed. How many babies are put to death in the Nile over the course of this time? How difficult is the slavery that they're under over the course of this time? We're not told how old Moses is here, but we find out in the New Testament that he's 40 years old. 40 more years of oppression, nothing happens. God's name isn't mentioned. We don't see God actively happening. Now, clearly, he's at work, but the way he's working is in a small way with a couple of rebellious women and a baby, which, by the way, is a pattern, okay? 
the time of judges, there was no king in those days and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you read the book and if it was a comic book, you wouldn't let kids read it, right? You read the book and you see where Israel's at and by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, it reads like Sodom and Gomorrah, except it's happening in Israel now, right? But slowly and quietly, we have the book of Ruth. And God is preparing to bring King David right in the same timeline. In the same way, how does the book of Samuel open? In the days of the judges, there's a woman named Hannah. She can't have a baby. And that baby becomes Samuel the prophet, who anoints not just Saul, but also David. Provides leadership for the first time that unifies Israel. Surprise, surprise, when we get to the New Testament. After 400 years of silence... No revelation from God, no prophets. Israel's just waiting and sitting first under the thumb of Babylon, then under the thumb of Medo-Persia, then under the thumb of the Greeks. Now finally they're under the thumb of the Romans and an angel comes to a priest by the name of Zechariah and says, you're going to have a baby. There's a pattern here. And this is one of the first places where it rolls out. And so... Adult Moses, 40 years later now, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Do you see the repeated phrase there, one of his people? Here is Moses, raised in the palace by royalty, but who does he identify with? My people, the Jews. Now, we're not told exactly how he comes to this understanding, but remember, he was raised in the youngest part of his life by his mother. Okay. He knows the story of Israel. He knows who he truly is. He knows, he knows these things. In fact, from what he does next, we know he knows more than that. Because watch what happens. He goes and he looks, verse 12, and he, uh, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, in verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And so he sees a particularly harsh taskmaster beating one of his people. And he looks around Nobody's present. I assume this means no Hebrews either. So he follows this guy, right, until it's a quiet back alley. He takes him out, and he buries him in the sand. Okay? When it says that he looked this way and that, clearly he's trying to be secretive here. But also, what is he doing? He's intentionally trying to set things right. Okay? And so what happens? Um, Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Okay, so the circumstances are different day two, right? He goes out this time, and instead of a taskmaster beating a Hebrew, it's two Hebrews in an argument that's turned into a fistfight. And he breaks them up, and he basically criticizes the one who started the fight. And he says, how can you do this to your own brother? Okay. And how do they respond? He says, wait a minute, who are you? Side note, okay, Egyptians look very Egyptian. Okay. If he's grown up in the palace, that means that he is head-to-toe shaved. He's dressed like an Egyptian. Okay, And so he, he's in, interfering here. He still may be known as Moses, the one from the river. Moses, the one who's a Hebrew raised in the palace, I'm sure. But that doesn't mean they see him as one of them. Okay, But there's something more important here. 
I want you to notice the transition in roles here. He starts as someone who's trying to overturn justice, and he does so with violence. Then his role is reconciliation in the community, and he has no credibility. That's important, okay? Because what, one of the lessons that Moses learns here is that a violent revolution isn't going to work, okay? He loses his credibility as a reconciler because now he's just another strongman. He's just turned the violence in the other direction. And so when it comes to the community here, they reject that. They reject him and just go, are you just going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? Right? They know that he's murdered somebody. Maybe they're next because they won't play nice. Right? You see, it seems to me here that what Moses is doing is testing the water as a leader of the resistance. Right? But it doesn't go well. He's not honestly that smart of a guy because sand moves. Okay? It's not like burying a guy six feet under there's sandstorms, there's wind, this body gets exposed and everybody knows it's there. And apparently he, as much as he looked this way and that, he really was seen. He realizes that everybody's heard and so he freaks out. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Okay, so Moses gets out of Egypt because Pharaoh's heard about it and now he's got enemies on both sides. The Jews don't want him as a deliverer. Pharaoh sees him as a threat, and so he leaves. Okay? Now, here's something I wanted to point out. When Stephen walks through Old Testament history before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 6 and 7, as he gives his sermon, he says that the reason that Moses behaved in this way is because he knew that God had called him to deliver Israel. Okay? He understood his calling. He knows, just like we do, where the story is going. And the reason he's acting in this way is not out of impulse. It's not just who he is. He feels called to be the deliverer. And Stephen, to make his point, points out that Israel doesn't recognize him as such. That they don't see it. Okay. Now here's the reason that's important. Because it's going to be another 40 years until the burning bush episode, which we'll finish with tonight. Moses is called to be the deliverer, but he's not yet sent. Okay, there's a difference between recognizing what God is calling you to and recognizing God's timing. Also, it's worth pointing out here, there's a difference between God's calling and God's method, right? And so we see two things going wrong here. First, he just takes the initiative, and second, the initiative he takes is completely wrong-headed. It's not what God wants to do at all. God doesn't need strong-arm Moses, okay? He doesn't need him to deal violence. God is totally capable of judgment on his own. But Moses runs away here, and there's so many things going on here that we have to picture, okay? One of them is that Moses has screwed up seriously. The story was going pretty good, wasn't it? We were seeing hope. Things were starting to make sense, and now there's no deliverer. But not only that, but Israel, who needs to be delivered, has just rejected their deliverer. In fact, notice what happens next in the story. So he flees to the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. While he's sitting there, verse 16, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. Okay, so these are Midianites. These are foreigners. You can go back in the book of Genesis and find out where they come from. They've got connections to Israel, but they've grown apart. Okay? 
So Moses here looks like an Egyptian, actually is a Hebrew. Either way, he's not a Midian. He recognizes the way these shepherds are treating these seven daughters is inappropriate, and he runs off all the shepherds. Okay. Now notice how the Midian da- Midianite priestess's daughters respond. Verse 18, when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Which is not the way we would say it. But what he says here is basically, what? And we're not going to, you know, buy him dinner? We're not going to have him over and thank him for what he's done? Not show him some of this Eastern hospitality? In verse 21, Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zephora. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so he calls his son sojourner or foreigner, but I want you to see the bigger picture here. Deliverer Moses in Egypt of the Hebrews, rejected. Random, looks like an Egyptian, deliverer to the Midianites, completely received, becomes part of the family. That's an important paradigm. What the author is trying to point out by by telling this story and telling it in this way is that the Jews don't reject or accept their deliverer. The Midianites do. But we have a serious problem now because when he names his son uh, foreigner, that's permanence. Okay, this looks like the end of the road. This is not merely a detour in Moses' mind. This is failure. And by calling himself foreigner... Uh, or calling his son foreigner, he's basically called him failure, right? He's no longer got a people. He's among a people that aren't his people, and he's just living as a sojourner now. So the story comes to a pause. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. How many days? We're not told here, but we'll be told later it's another 40 years. Okay, so burning bush, bush Moses, Moses is 80 years old. So that's not just 40 years while Moses is growing up. It's another 40 years in the wilderness and Israel is still suffering. Okay? And the tyrant of Pharaoh is still ruling over them. During these days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Okay. Now, a couple of things here. First, I want you to notice that one aspect of what we're told here involves prayer. Right? Israel begins to cry out to God, and God hears their prayers. The second thing I want you to notice here is that it says that God saw the people of Israel. That's the same phrase that it used just a few verses ago for when Moses wanted to see how his brothers were faring. Okay? So Moses sees and he does something about it. Right here we find out finally that God sees too. Now it might be a little bit confusing to you when it says here that he remembered them, that he remembered his covenant as if he forgot. Right? You shouldn't picture this as if God's phone is ringing and he picks it up and they're like, God, help us. And they're like, oh, the Jews. Right? That's not what's going on here. The, the word remembered is, is an anthropomorphism. It's, it's a human term being applied to God to make a point. But we have Moses already. 
miraculously born and raised. All the pieces are in place. It's not now that God starts working, okay? When the Bible mentions remembered, like we learned in the story of the flood, it means that God is about to again take action, okay? Shifting from passive to active. Obviously, once again, not in the true sense. As Jesus said of him and his father, me and the father are always working. And we see that even in the story here, but he's about to deliver. He's about to not just hear their prayers, but answer them, okay? Now is the time. Um, and so the last thing I wanna, want you to notice here is that the basis of his deliverance is twofold. One is their need, right? He hears them groaning under great oppression, and he's going to respond to it. He sees injustice. The Bible reiterates this over and over again. But the second reason is because he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? And so the second thing that's going on here is he's got a plan for the nation of Israel, and he's about to move the plan forward. He remembers the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he start, he's, he's about to bring them to pass. Okay? That's what this phrase means here. But we've got a problem. We have a people crying out. We have a God who wants to take action. And then we have Moses who's MIA, right? Out in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. Imagine the change that Moses has gone through over this time. Do you think he's got any hold open potential where it's like, well, God could still use me. Well, this is still part of who I am. Do you think he still identifies as a Hebrew who worships Jehovah? We're not told any of that. We know that he's married into a priest of Midian's family. We know that he's living in a foreign land, and we also find out that he's taken up shepherding. So for 40 years, he's just been shepherding in the wilderness, and God's got to do something about this. And so that's chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, side note. We don't know exactly where Midian was. We do know that it's nowhere near Mount Horeb, okay? And so we've got a, a couple of possibilities here. Either, like is often the case in this land, he's gotta go a long distance to find what he needs for his sheep. But there's a second thing, and this just occurred to me this week. So this goes in the, this is just Justin's opinion drawer, okay? Um, but what's gonna happen at the end of this chapter is all of a sudden, his brother Aaron's going to walk up to him. Aaron doesn't live in Midian. Aaron lives in Egypt with all the other Hebrews. Aaron is, by the way, Moses' older brother. And all of a sudden, he just conveniently shows up at Mount Horeb. I think, and this is just my, my opinion, I think Moses has maintained contact, okay? And so he has a routine meeting place with Aaron, his brother, somewhere in this region. The only other thing I want to mention is that Mount Horeb is, not, is also not equidistant between Egypt and Israel. It's out of the way. In fact, when Pharaoh looks at Israel heading for Horeb, he's confused and he just says they're wandering because he has no idea where they're going. He knows where they came from. That's not where they're going. More on that when we get um, later into Exodus. But nonetheless, he's near Mount Horeb and it just refers to it here as the mountain of God. That is not a label from the time. You wouldn't have seen that written on the map. Uh, This is not a statement that has some sort of place where God has always been. The reason why it's the mountain of God is preparatory, okay, for what's about to happen. 
You may remember in the story of Jacob, Jacob is running from his family. He runs out of energy. He's got to sleep somewhere, so he just takes a rock in a place, and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up after having this dream, he realizes that God is present there, so he calls it Bethel. Okay? He's surprised to find that in this wilderness place, when he's merely a man on the run, that God is present. When it says the mountain of God here, the emphasis is the same. All the mountains are the Lord's. Okay? This one's significantly be, uh, about to be shown as such. And so it's here, the mountain of God. Um, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. Okay, a couple of things here. First, what he sees. He sees a bush on fire. Okay, he's in a big wilderness area, and there's just a random bush on fire. But the second thing it tells us is that he stops and he looks, and he can tell that although the bush is on fire, it's not being consumed by the fire. Now, this may be super and uber miraculous significant in the sense that we've got a green tree and it's clearly green and there's flames in the midst of it. But it also may be the fact that the fire's just still going, right? Remember that this is merely a shrub. Uh, imagine a thorn bush or even a tumbleweed. How long is the fire going to last on that thing, right? But this one just keeps going. It catches his attention and it's significant to him because it's abnormal, okay? Now, there may actually be a symbolic significance in this as well. Clearly, when the prophets later look back on this, they refer to God as a consuming fire, and this is clearly what they're thinking of, okay? This idea that, that, that there's something about the life and the flame that somehow describes this hard-to-describe holiness of God. More on that in a second. The second thing I want you to notice is that it says specifically that the angel of the Lord was in this burning bush. Now, we've encountered the angel of the Lord as a description before, so I just want to give you a simple reminder of what we're dealing with here. This is not merely the Lord's angel. In fact, as he begins to talk, he's going to refer to himself as God, and he's even going to clarify, my name is I am, right? He's going to take the big title of the passage. It's this angel of the Lord that's speaking, okay? And so some have looked at this and gone the, and basically said, who do we know who's distinct from God and yet the full representation of God? That's what the New Testament says about Jesus. And so although this isn't incarnate in the flesh Jesus, this isn't Jesus the time traveler who comes and is born of Mary and then hops in a time machine and goes back into the Old Testament, right? This isn't a Doctor Who episode. But... That's the role that Jesus has always played, the one who, who makes known who the Father is. Even if this angel is representative, it's in identity that it's representative. It's not merely a messenger. It's very interesting to read how the Jews talk about these passages because they're very difficult for a monotheistic religion. We can't really make sense of things like this until we get to the New Testament and we go, oh, okay. But nonetheless, so Moses says to himself in verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now don't criticize him for talking to himself. All of his companions are sheep. Uh, and this is an abnormal thing, okay? But nonetheless, he goes to look. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. 
And he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Okay, and so as he's approaching, God doesn't just begin the conversation, he actually gives him a warning. He effectively says, stop right there, don't come any closer until you take off your shoes. Okay, and he gives him the reason. He says, the, the land that you're standing on is holy. Now, why is it holy? I um, may be the only one in the room who read the book American Gods by Neil Gaiman. It, to this day, is one of the best articulations of a Christian view of idolatry from a non-Christian I've ever read. But it's also a little graphic in places, so don't, don't take it as a suggestion. But in that book, there are places of spiritual significance strewn across the United States, and it's where we put all the tourist traps, okay? But they're, they're places of spiritual power. That's not what this is. This is just a bush on a mountain. What makes it holy is the fact that God is present there, okay? The tabernacle without the presence of God is just a tent. The temple without the presence of God is just a building. You without the presence of God is just a human being. When it says here, holy ground, it's holy because God is present. And what does the word holy mean? Simply put, it just means set apart, okay? And so if you have a spoon and a holy spoon, you don't use that one for particular things. It's set apart to just be used, okay? When God refers to himself as holy, effectively what he's saying is wholly different. He's saying unique, saying not like you, okay? Not like other things, completely different than anything else in the universe, and so this ground is holy, and that means we're playing by a new rule book. Now, you won't find another place in the Bible where taking off shoes equals the practice required for holiness. Okay? But here's how I think about it. He makes a transition here from outdoors to indoors, even though he's still outdoors. Okay? He's walking into a tabernacle without a tent. Okay? And so like many of us, he recognizes that by taking off his shoes. The significance here is the distinctiveness, the uniqueness of this place now that God is present. So before you come any closer, recognize the transition. So, verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, already it's referenced Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because that was the covenant, right? But here, God takes that as his identity. And from here on out, for the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the number one way that God is referred to is the, as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What is God doing for Moses here? He's not merely saying, I'm not one of the other gods. He's reminding him of the promises. He's reminding him of the covenant. He's reminding him of the work that began with his patriarchs and is still waiting fulfillment, okay? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, okay? And so now he recognizes what's going on. He's been kind of in a dream state before this. He's, he, you know, the bush says Moses, and he says, yeah, that's me, right? It says, take off your shoes, and he does so, but now he gets the full weight of what's going on, and so he, he doesn't even want to look at the bush anymore, um, because he's afraid to look at God. Verse 7, 
Then the Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land that is uh, into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In other words, God says, I am going to deliver Israel. I know their oppression. I'm going to, just as I promised Jacob, bring them back to the promised land. It's a good land. It's their inheritance, okay? In other words, another way to put this is he says, now I'm going to act. Now I'm going to do what I said. As he had promised to Abraham, his descendants would be in a foreign land, be mistreated, and God would powerfully bring them out. As he said to Jacob, you will go to Egypt for a little while, and then I will bring you home. And now he says to Moses, now is the time. But I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Moses, you will bring them out. He says, I'm going to do it. Okay? The first thing God wants Moses to understand here is what God is doing. Okay? Not what Moses' responsibility is here. Um, so, verse 9, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so he says, I'm going to deliver. And he says, I'm going to deliver through you. Okay. Go to Pharaoh and bring my people out. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, clearly... That's a different Moses than the Moses we encountered at the beginning of the story. He had an identity crisis of sorts. He doesn't have one anymore. Now he knows he's not the guy, right? This isn't even the stirring of some spark left over in his heart from God's calling. He just says, either he's saying, I'm not the guy, or maybe he's even saying, I'm disqualified, right? I tried that. It didn't work. You have the wrong guy. The paradigm for how God chooses and uses leaders, once again, the pattern begins here, and we see it over and over again. God chooses people who don't understand why they're chosen. And so Gideon goes, but I'm from the weakest tribe, and I'm the weakest of my family. And God says, yep, I chose you. Jeremiah says, but I'm merely a youth, and I can't even speak very well. And God says, yep. And Isaiah says, woe of me, I'm, a pe- I'm of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Peter says, depart from me, Jesus, for I'm a sinful man. Right? Over and over again, there's this recognition, and it's the way it's supposed to be. Now, Moses is going to push it too far. But where he starts is the place we always start. Okay? It's the recognition that what God has for us, whatever it is, in whatever capacity, I don't care if he's calling you into marriage or to take a job as a janitor. What it looks like to be God's witness in those roles is too much for you. But it's part of the bargain. It's the way it's designed. God is saying, I am going to be a spouse to your spouse, and you're going to marry them for me. God is saying, I am going to be, uh, you know, my light is going to shine in your place of business, and you're going to be the light. Paul loves the book of Isaiah. And he takes a couple of messianic passages from Isaiah and he makes them his mission statement. And so Isaiah says, there's one coming that will be a light to the nations. And Paul, when he's telling the Jews he's about to go to the Gentiles, he says, I'm that light to the nations. Which is it? 
Is it Paul or Jesus? Yes, because it's Jesus and Paul. And here it's yes, because it's God in Moses. And so he starts from the right place. What was disqualifying Moses originally? He was pretty sure he was capable. He was competent. He was ready to take the job. You couldn't have chosen any better, better person. I should be your first candidate for this, God, right? But here he says, who am I, right? And so verse 12, God says, but I will be with you. Notice this. He doesn't massage Moses' ego. He doesn't say, oh, you can do it, buddy. He doesn't say, hey, I built you for this. No, what does he say? It's something way more significant. He says, I'm going to be with you, right? The active ingredient in the work of God is always God, even if you're the vessel, even if you're the companion. I just feel the need to hit this really hard for some reason tonight. All of you need to know that God doesn't need you. That he's not, you know, twiddling his thumbs and rubbing his hands together going, oh, I have no idea how I'm going to pull this off. I wish I could just have, you know, I just need some help. No, he chooses to use us. Why? For one, it's because God is totally capable of working in us while he works through us. And so he's going to use this calling not just to deliver Israel, but also to deliver Moses. Okay? Moses is shaped into a Christ-like character during this time through not measuring up, through working alongside God. How is it that the disciples become the apostles? They're with Jesus. So the first thing he says out the gate is, I will be with you. And then he says, second, also I'm going to give you a sign. He says, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now notice what he says there. He says, the sign will be, you're going to bring all the people out. I've called you to bring the people out. How will I know? Oh, when you bring them out, you'll know. Okay? It's kind of striking, isn't it? And there are other times where people, like Gideon, says, well, give me a sign. Make it wet. Make my sheepskin wet and the ground dry. In fact, give me a second sign. Do the reverse, right? It's not that God is unwilling to do a sign here, but there's something about Moses. There's something intimate in this, in this where he knows that the only way Moses is going to know is when he sees it with his own eyes. And he just says, this is how you'll know. And for now, you're just going to have to walk with me. Now, there's other pretty good evidence that he can trust God in this, right? There's this burning bush that's suddenly talking to him. There's the signs that he's going to give him, like turning his staff into a snake and putting his hand in in leprosy. There's things along the way that are evidence that God is there, but the final evidence is that it's going to happen, right? Basically, he just says, this is your destiny, and it is irreversible. That's the sign. So he continues here. So he says, you shall serve God on this mountain, verse 13. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent to me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, this is an interesting question because it's hard to tell exactly what Moses' concern is here. He starts saying, if I come and say the God of our fathers, and then they ask what your name is, what should I tell them? Okay, now, God's designation he's chosen for himself in this passage is already the God of your fathers, right? So what is Moses afraid is going to happen here? It's a little bit hard to tell. Could it be that the name Jehovah that we find throughout the book of Genesis is actually kept quiet in Israel, that they're secretive with it? 
Could it be that Moses has always been kept outside of that? And he recognizes that, that he's an outsider and that he needs the password. Maybe. Some commentators believe so. I think it's a little out there. I think actually what Moses is doing here is different. He's looking for something that we don't understand as moderns because for us a name is just a name, right? I, this isn't true of all of you. In fact, I can see people in the room who I don't know your story and I know it's not true of because of the names that you have. But for a lot of us, myself included, my name isn't necessarily significant, okay? I was named after the lead singer of the Moody Blues, Justin Hayward. My sister was named after Carly Simon, okay? My parents became Christians. They had my other sister. They named her Hannah, okay? That one has significance. Half of the children that I have, we picked the name out of a book because it was a long fight, and that's just the best we could do, okay? But in the Bible, names mean something, they're significant because they don't merely express designation, they also express character. And so what I think he's hoping for here is something more than just a title or a description or a password. And it's interesting how God answers. He's looking for something validating. Tell us who you really are, God. Do you understand why Moses would have questions here? Moses, who's watched his people suffer silently with no present God and has lived in the wilderness now apart for 40 years, tell me who you really are, God. Show me that I can trust you, God. That's, to me, what's going on here. So look at how God responds. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, intriguing enough, this phrase here in the Hebrew is relatively close to the phrase Yahweh, but it's not. What it says here is basically he takes, the, uh, he takes Yahweh and he twists it into a statement that's pretty well translated here, but to some degree very hard to translate. Some translations say, I will be who I will be because there's an active element here. When we say I am, it just means existence. It doesn't imply any sort of activity. This, this phrase implies more than that. But what does it mean? Why does God say I am who I am? Okay, first I want you to recognize it's intentionally a non-answer. Okay. I am that I am. I'm the self-evident one. I'm self-existent. Think of all of the titles you have for yourself that are referential, right? So you're a brother because you have siblings. You're a child because you have parents. You're a parent because you have childs. God also uses those descriptions because those relationships help us unpack who we are. But before there was any other reference point, there was God and he was the I am right? He's not defined by us. But also when he says, I am that I am here, there's a blank check reality to this, is there not? In fact, God plays on this heavily for the rest of the Old Testament, and Jesus picks up on it heavily in the Gospel of John. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, he's intentionally writing out the checks of who God is, right? I am that I am is a way of saying, I am everything. I am all that you need. I am all that you were designed for. It's clearly also the place where we get to in Revelation where Jesus reveals to him, uh, or where the Apostle John reveals to Jesus as the one who was and who is and who is to come. When he says, I am that I am, there's a sense of timelessness and eternality in this phrase, okay? This is a huge term, and it's not defined for us here, but the rest of who God is across the Bible fills out what this phrase means. What it says for Moses in this context is, you have enough information already. I am 
that I am. I will be all you need me to be. I am the active ingredient in what's about to happen. That's what God says to Moses here. But also notice that he doesn't stop there. It's not merely in quotations, I am that I am, but he continues here. He says, uh, I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He shatters the rules of appropriate grammar here to make his point. Say that the I am sent you. Right? He wants to emphasize this point. But he continues here and he says, this is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's that little phrase I am there that Yahweh probably comes from. It's relatively difficult because the name of God was so revered by the Hebrews, they deleted all of the vowels and erased all the records and so we don't even know if it's Yahweh or Jehovah. We're filling in blanks there like when you're playing um, Hangman. We don't actually know. But here, the name of Jehovah, and like I said, we find it throughout the book of Genesis, and it's hard to tell if that's Moses adding the name, because this is the name that Israel knows, or if the name has been part of Israel's history, and now it's just being explained. It's hard to tell, but it's one or the other. Um, And so, he says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he's already referenced that Moses is going to go to Pharaoh, but now he sees his immediate task is to go to the elders of Israel and say, God's about to do. God has sent me to tell you that he's about to deliver you. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so the elders and Moses are to go before Pharaoh and say, let us go three days journey that we may sacrifice to God. Now, when we read that, that sounds like a lie. It sounds like a convenient lie, right? Because three days is enough time to cut and run and not be caught. That's probably not what's going on. It's probably uh, a, a phrase, um, we have lots of phrases like this in English and they're all escaping me at the moment. Oh, like when we say just a second, we don't really mean just a second, right? There's a subtext that means hold on until I'm ready to talk to you. We have lots of other phrases like that that aren't as precise as they look. Three days journey is enough time that it's probably implying the rest, okay? It's, it's a shortening. What they're really asking for and definitely how Pharaoh's gonna understand it is that they're leaving, okay? And they're just putting it, you know, in this particular phrase. And so, continue here, verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so unlike the elders who are eventually going to listen to Moses, Pharaoh is not. And he says the only way this is going to happen is if he's compelled by a mighty hand. This phrase here, by a mighty hand, in this context and everywhere else, means a human hand, okay, by force. He says, I know the only way Pharaoh is going to do this is if you win the war. But notice what God says next. 
he says, verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. Notice it's not even his mighty hand. Like, wouldn't you expect him to lay on a bunch of adjectives to explain how his hand is so much more powerful than Pharaoh's? He doesn't. He just says, but I'm going to stretch out my hand. It won't be a problem. Okay. He says the way that he's going to do this is not with warfare. It's not with weapons. It's with plagues. And he lays them out here. He says, I will strike out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After all that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. And he continues here in verse 22, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, gold, and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Okay, now there's a couple of things going on. The last thing he says here is when you leave, you won't leave empty-handed. And part of that has to do with the promise. In fact, we didn't talk about this in Genesis, but we've got two completely different paintings of the future of Israel. One given to Abraham where he says, I'm going to take you into, into a place and they will enslave you. And one given to Jacob where he says, I'm going to take you into a place and it will make you wealthy. Those are not normally coexisting futures, right? How can it be both and? Are we slaves and we're set free with nothing? Or are we made wealthy? Are we fruitful and multiply? But what God does here is actually makes them wealthy in a surprisingly unique way. And what he says is going to happen is that the women or the household are just going to go to their Egyptian uh, counterparts and say, can I have some jewelry? And they're going to say yes, and they're going to leave with that jewelry. Now, a couple of things. Okay, First off, when it says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians here, the idea is not just an attack on the Egyptians, it's a setting right. Okay, This is unpaid wages, right? This is justice because this wealth was built on the backs of the work of the Israelites, okay? And so this is a balancing of the scales. Second here, it is voluntary. And I assume, actually, that this is out of sympathy. Once again, notice who the working ones are here. It's not the men plundering the Egyptians. It's the women asking and women Egyptians responding. This sounds like sympathy to me. Now, another side note. Just think about this, and this is where we'll close tonight because this blows my mind. What happens to this jewelry? This gold, silver, this wealth of the Egyptians that goes out with Israel as they wander in the wilderness, what do they do with it? While Moses is up on the mountain, they melt it down, they turn it into a golden calf, and they worship it. Now, We've already seen that Israel is not really on the same page as God and that he's going to have to deliver them against their own will. And that's not just during Egypt. That's during the wilderness. That's all the way to the promised land. Kicking and screaming is, is Israel's MO, okay? God knows this. He knows that their idolatry is going to be the byproduct of this, and yet he still gives. Why? Because that's what grace looks like. God gives mouths and voices to those who will use those mouths and voices to blaspheme him. He gives incredible intelligence to those who will use that intelligence to mask his existence. By the way, this should reflect on our giving. Too often we're worried about the consequence of our generosity. Sometimes giving like God isn't like that. Not all the time. It doesn't mean that you should enable people to ruin their lives. That's not generous. 
okay? God's got their back. He's going to be there to pick up the pieces of their idolatry. It's a little bit different than the homeless guy on the street, okay? But grace means undeserved, and grace means more than you deserve. And God is that way with Israel, and he's that way with us, okay? Even with Moses, God calls Moses, and that call is irrevocable. Moses didn't screw things up 40 years ago. Moses isn't completely off the grid and therefore irrelevant. He's still the plan. And I'll tell you what, it's not suddenly Moses has this burning bush experience and now he's perfect. He's going to blow it too, so much so that he won't actually enter into the promised land himself. But he will see it because God is gracious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we, we just thank you for the, not merely the lessons that we can take from this, but the things that we've learned about you tonight, that you are faithful and reliable, that you're working when we can't see you working, that you know the end from the beginning, that you are the great I am, and that you call us to work alongside you, not because you need us, but because you want us. And you call us not just to work on your half, but so that we can have the experience of you working through us. I pray, Lord, that the, the phrase repeated so often in the Bible, the one that Jesus said as he left this earth, I will be with you. I pray that that would be our standard and our foundation, that it would give us boldness to follow you wherever you lead and to do whatever you're calling us to. And that we would recognize both the dignity that comes with doing God's work with God uh, and the incredible gracious gift that you graciously call us to things because they're good for us. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night, everyone.